0: Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chava, and my guest today has been a leading practitioner in the field of political risk analysis for over 20 years, uh, establishing Eurasia Group's financial markets research business uh, in 2000, going on to spend 17 years at Citi, uh, where she was the first chief global political analyst on Wall Street. Uh, and is now at Avonhurst as the head of global political strategy and a partner uh, where she services the needs of sophisticated capital. Joining me from London is Tina Fordham. Tina, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Manas. So, Tina, you know, you've worked in this industry for such a long time, and, and you must have seen uh, so many trends go on. I mean, I'm just curious. How have global political risk themes evolved during that 20-year period? But also on the demand side of that equation, what what do you feel your investors... Uh, And executives want from political risk analysis.
1: Well, I feel very privileged to have started uh, when I did, 1999, which seems uh, it was another another world where investors were focused on the opportunities from globalization. We had all of these, you know, pro globalization uh, trends at work. Uh, Emerging markets um, were were rising; were very hot and. Uh, developed market investors wanted to understand basically how politically stable um, these frontier exotic and, and now just kind of large EM economies might become. And the assumption was very much a, a linear sort of progression um, to basically the U.S. model of democracy and the, and the Washington consensus. Hmm. Uh, how naive that seems now Right, um, and uh, we brought that kind of post Cold War mentality to the initial frameworks that we developed at Eurasia Group, and you know, to to kind of answer your question with, with one one phrase. Um, in twenty years, I have seen the, the the questions from investors shift away from which countries are the most politically stable, and therefore more likely to become economically prosperous to which ones are the most volatile. And so instead of an expectation of eventual stability and kind of, you know, uh, converging with these global norms, um, including the Washington Consensus and everything else, we have massive uh, fragmentation. Um, and, And that is something that I don't think many of us would have expected. Uh, at the time, the biggest shift that that I observe really is how political risk has moved away from being something that that happened in faraway lands that we would monitor from a distance to very acute, mm-hmm. actually uh, developed market political risk. There weren't people who were looking at u s. political risks, and there weren't people looking at, you know regional German elections for example, as we had during the Eurozone crisis, to try to game out um, how these races might go as a way of interpreting how likely it would be that the the German Bundestag would vote to to support um, aid in these countries, right? Uh, So that's huge. We now have political risk kind of everywhere and the pandemic has accelerated so many existing trends. Um, I think the most challenging aspect now for all of us practitioners in the field of political risk, as well as for business leaders, uh, is to, you know, to try to find what the trend lines are, um, and what the likely sort of, if not scenarios, then just, you know, plausible scenarios are going to be in the most complex political, social, economic, uh, and public health environment that any of us have ever experienced in our professional
0: lifetimes. And when you made about, you know, the shift away from political risk being in a faraway land to being much closer to home, really interesting. But I'm curious as to how that might have impacted the way you work with clients, because surely sort of, uh, you know, advising someone on the politics of uh, an emerging market they're not familiar with must be very different to, you know, advising someone on, say, Brexit to a London-based client who is plugged into those circles, who. Might have those affiliations. Might already have sort of decades of strong opinions on uh, these things close to home. Um, you know, do you approach that a different way?
1: Well, it's certainly true that um, unlike perhaps uh, economics, where you know uh, the economists can can maybe lay claim to specialist knowledge, uh, I am a political scientist, uh, of course, um, but. Um, uh, everybody has an opinion on politics, and as you say, um, lots of sophisticated investors are extremely well connected, um, often very interested in politics themselves, and so it can be quite a, a delicate business. And and furthermore, you don't know what their personal biases are, and this was particularly challenging during during Brexit. You know, did they see Brexit as a as a risk at all, or as something that was going to lead the UK, where we both are now, to these glorious sunlit uplands. Um, And so being um, nonpartisan in analysis and taking a data-driven approach uh, has been um, a real trademark, I suppose, of of my methodology, because let's face it, a lot of people who are giving advice on uh, political analysis are what I call formers. Former MPs, former members of Congress, former secretaries of state, um, and of course they have been at the cold face of, of politics and policy making, and met some of the important decision makers. You know, it's incredible listening to Madeline Albright um, talk about meeting. You know, well, just about every world leader. Um, I've had a chance to interview her before, but great stories about. Uh, North Korean leader, um, Condi Rice, talking about Putin and, and this sort of thing. Um, but I think it's very important in this extremely fragmented and uh, very likely more volatile age that we resist the temptation to reduce um, political developments to kind of entertainment um, and vignettes and, and and anecdotes. I mean, I think It is useful to have the perspectives of of people who understand how the sausage is being made. Absolutely. Uh, And legislative affairs analysts do this very, very well. But my personal approach, one that I've developed over the last couple of decades, is is really to try to be holistic, um, not just focusing on. What is almost uh, invariably uh, uh, the great man in charge and leaders, which is very tempting for for business leaders, um, but also the the bottom up trends, which I call box Populi risk, as well as security. Um, I have uh, recently started uh, doing some work with the Ministry of defense and and you know briefing senior people and bringing it all together in a way that isn't overwhelming, right people especially CEOs and executives, are overwhelmed. They have access to anyone. And so our job, I think, is to to bring together the most relevant um, data and content and filter it and, again, focus on on plausible scenarios and and just resist the, the urge to talk about what we would like to happen or what we think should happen.
0: Right. And I definitely want to sort of explore that, um, Vox populi risk idea a bit more in depth, but just before we do that, I like another thing you said earlier about, uh, you know, political risk sort of going from being something where investors are looking for the most politically stable markets to now how they can work with the most politically volatile uh, markets. And I feel like that's almost coincided with a shift in how we think about, you know, risk in general and particularly in financial markets, especially after 2008. Um, you know, I, I think there's a general sort of uh, lots of people that I've spoken to and sort of when they deal with clients have found that, you know, to certain clients, political risk became more of a box ticking thing, became more of a sort of a green check after 2008 when, you know, boards wanted more and more to incorporate risk management as a structured uh, sort of framework, you know, especially enforced by uh, the last sort of five to 10 years we've seen of, of green revolution of, you know, ESG really becoming front and center in every corporate agenda. Um, have, have you found something similar?
1: Oh, absolutely. Because first of all, what do we even mean by political risk? You know, so I'm often approached uh, by by by, you know, fresh-faced young traders who say, well, can we do a political risk index? And I say, sure. What are we solving for? Um, what is our exam question? And what does political risk mean to you? Because still, for many people in financial markets, political risk is the, the Fed raising rates. Now, in fact, that's really more policy risk. Mm. Um, but if we just pause on that example for a moment, um, you know, people who are who are Fed watchers who who follow U.S. interest rates in a way, I'm very jealous of them because all they have to do is think about what. 12 people on the FOMC might decide. And plus, they have a whole timeline of, of data to look at. Um, in, in political risk, we don't have that. And again, what do we mean? Do we mean French elections? Do we mean the likelihood that China may invade Taiwan uh, or take over Taiwan sooner than expected? Those two examples alone are, are two completely different um, indices that we might put together. And yet, we in the last 20 years have really just started to think about political risk. And and of course the temptation is to reduce it to an aggregate indicator um, or a a color code for sets of countries based on how risky we believe they are. But really the the focus is still mainly on default risk. um, And, and maybe uh, as, as uh, someone I once worked with at a, an uh, investment bank once said, "Tina, we want you to tell us when the tanks are going to roll, um, or when Argentina is going to default." That's the old school mm. approach. You mentioned the ESG, and ESG is a great example. There's a, a huge interest, huge opportunity, huge rush to try to find ways to quantify this risk. But it's telling that the the most difficult um, aspect to model is the S. The social, and um, that's where I've brought in some of my um, kind of unusual methodological approaches to to trying to change the way we think about gender equality, for example, and its relationship to to country risk. So, this is what I'm focused on at Avenhurst, kind of trying to, you know, to take stock uh, at this stage of the pandemic and say how can we look with with fresh eyes at the range of factors that are now kind of unleashed and on the loose. And what's more, in the context of uh, an interest rate environment where we may see hikes, we might, uh, we are very, you know, we're already seeing inflation, whether it's sticky or not sticky, but it's a constellation of factors that most investors and decision makers, unless they are 70 years old and, and managed through the oil price spike of 1973, have never experienced, plus the post pandemic factors. And yet I feel an enormous amount of complacence. Uh, and I think that comes back, well, to two points. First of all, to just human psychology. I mean, we've all been through a lot. How much more uncertainty can people bear? There's a huge kind of um, desire to return to the status quo. And, and you know, that's status quo bias is a, is a thing. You know, this will pass and we will go back to. The way we were, um, uh, but also, you know, how do we model it? Uh, Let's put it in the the box of due diligence um, and standardize it. And that's really tough because fundamentally, I see political risk as about human behavior um, and a complex intersection between incentives uh, and constraints.
0: Interesting. And so I really want to unpack sort of when you briefly kind of alluded to ESG there, because I always find whenever, I mean, at least our clients think about ESG and when I hear this broader, just, you know, debate about it, uh, the E of ESG tends to be 90% of the discussion. I just, I, I very strongly feel like not enough, not nearly enough people are talking about the social factors, uh, sort of that, that, you know, might, might present a risk. Um, I always think about, you know, the, 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 case of uh, the repression of Uyghur Muslims uh, and the fact that, you know, we've known about that roughly since, you know, very, quite confidently since at least 2017, 2018, but it's only in the last year or so uh, that there was actually immense pressure on companies like. Uh, oh, I,
1: stu- I studied the Uyghur Muslim suppression in my uh, classes at, at SIPA at Columbia in 1999. Right. So th- this, these things are not new and they are not black swans and they are not unknowns.
0: Definitely, and, and so the and and I'm I'm just so surprised that it's only really been the last two years that we've seen you know big fast fashion brands, uh, have to incorporate that in their you know uh, strategy and have to pull out from you know uh, being part of the cotton supply chains in Xinjiang, right? It seems like that stuff is coming up way too late, uh, you know, even though people are really focusing on ESG, but also almost entirely focusing on climate, right? So, did you feel like there needs to be sort of a shift, or, or at least more of a deeper look uh, on the S of ESG?
1: Well, I, I mean, the answer is yes, but I would, I would gently push back on your perception that this, this, uh, this push is, is new. It has a new name mm. in ESG, but before that, it was Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR. And, um, you know, again, when I was doing my graduate studies at Columbia, uh, it was, in fact, um, uh, church groups who were leading the way in terms of the screens that they were developing For ethical investment, it was the anti-apartheid movement that was probably the most successful example, maybe even still to date, of uh, corporate social responsibility and um, dealing with the the regime in in South Africa. So it's not new. It's got the new name. And uh, what has changed is that the younger cohort of investors um, is very passionate about this. And I would say the more Forward-thinking, uh, best-run companies are attuned to it. But again, it's really how to model it. The emphasis on the E in ESG is partly because there's more data, um, and and without data, uh, it, it's it's really difficult to you know to to produce tools that will help guide investors. But I would take that. Uh, example of the E and ESG, the environment. Here we are in this this week of COP twenty six being held in in Glasgow, very likely to be disappointing. Uh, and why is that? It's certainly not because of the the lack of enthusiasm or even the lack of focus from uh, from the investment community on ESG. It's always and forever the lack of political will from leaders, right? And that is what is ultimately going to hold back the um, progression of the ESG agenda. Now, why is that? And I think this is really important, even though it may not be a popular point to make, it's because shutting down coal-fired plants and uh, a kind of uh, furthering the death knell of of, certain industries, which employ increasingly small numbers of people but in electorally important areas and with swing constituencies mm. is suicide politically for, for certain leaders. And we've seen how in the United States, Senator Joe Manchin, the senator from Democratic senator uh, from West Virginia, has effectively blocked uh, aspects of, of Biden's very ambitious agenda, um, in part because he's got 12,000 uh, you know, workers in, 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 uh, the coal industry in his constituency. And so the macro will come down to the micro and politics is always the part of the possible. And that brings me to another conclusion, which is demographics. ESG agenda will take off when people under 50 represent the largest generational cohort. And, um, that's not true in most countries.
0: Right, and, in other words, but it's also only a matter of time uh, yes. until it becomes really sort of front and center um I also want to sort of come back to you know your research during during the course of the pandemic. You launched some new analytical frameworks uh looking at what you call sociopolitical risk uh, and resilience post pandemic but as well as sort of very interesting uh linkage between gender equality and and country risk. Can you tell us a bit more about what these studies revealed
1: yeah, um when 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 things were quiet in the pandemic and you know basically we had a lack of data indicators all over the place everything in flux i of course decided that the thing to do would be to try to to try to find some um you know if not signals in the noise then perhaps some patterns um that we could use to to frame our thinking because um, you know, if, economic, if, if economics is about using past data to predict the future, uh, political science tries to sometimes emulate economics and, and do that. Uh, but I think it's also really important to acknowledge when we need to revise our, our frameworks. And so at Avonhurst, um, in conjunction with Dr. Sveta Petrova, who um, is a, a lecturer at Columbia, a quantitative political scientist? We put together and launched a 27-country um, analytical framework. So I don't call it an index for reasons that people who know about statistics will will understand. We haven't; it's not robust econometrically. We haven't got a timeline going back many years, um, but nevertheless uh, produced some very interesting results. Looking at what I called Vax Populi risk. And that's a nod to to Vox Populi, which I, I published in 2012, which anticipated rising populism. Um, and it, it really it, it, it pulled up some some interesting results. Um, we tried to focus on something that would be complementary to the existing efforts out there. Um, investment research related to the pandemic has, for obvious reasons, focused on uh, things that could be trapped, like Um, caseloads, infections, um, fatalities, vaccination rates, and and these kinds of things. But um, Sveta and I thought that that didn't tell the whole story. And we wanted to bring in the kinds of drivers that social scientists look at. Um, For example, social cohesion. What does that mean? Um, It basically means uh, public willingness to do the right thing, in this case, you know, kind of pandemic hygiene measures, even if you didn't completely understand it because it was good for other people. Um, now, in the UK, we actually score very highly on uh, social cohesion, which I find quite interesting. I mean, the, and, and the UK record in the pandemic has not been stellar for all kinds of reasons. But what we, what we have on the basis of, if you'd like to call it culture or something else, Pretty high rates, at least at the time, not not commenting on the total absence of masks now on the tube because they're not required um, of people willing to basically go with the flow and follow the rules um, for the for the sake of it. Where have the biggest exceptions been where we see lower levels of social cohesion compounded by uh, what the Edelman Foundation calls the infodemic? So basically belief in conspiracy theories. The three countries scoring the highest in the 27 countries we looked at are the United States, France, and Russia. This is extremely interesting. Brazil is also um, up there. Now, all of those countries have struggled to, to various degrees, but that collision, frankly, between lower social cohesion you know, I I kind of say jokingly, blame the libertarians, you know, for the idea that the nanny state can't tell us what to do. Well, that might be one thing when it comes to, I don't know, taxation policy. It hasn't worked that well in the pandemic, right? Um, And the, the increased belief in conspiracy theories and lack of trust, which Pew Foundation and so many others have followed has ended up being a serious social liability during the pandemic, which we argue in the Vax Populi framework acts as a drag to recovery.
0: Right, I mean, that's really, really fascinating. I think that sort of connects quite well uh, to what you're currently producing, which is the 2022 uh, Global Political Risk Outlook. And I know we're doing something similar at London Politica as well. So it'd be interesting to get your thoughts uh, on, you know, what, what are the, sort of broadly the, the big themes and signposts you're watching for the upcoming year? What are you telling your clients?
1: Well, without giving the store away, because um, your listeners are are very welcome to join the launch of uh, the Avonhurst Global Political Outlook on December 2nd, um, if, uh, if they get in touch. Um, you know, it's really building on some of the themes which I've alluded to during our conversation. So first of all, none of us have been here before, even just when it comes to the economy. Uh, Inflation and rising interest rates, a tightening environment, the Fed taper, uh, fuel prices, uh, fuel price rises, a kind of a return of the old school geopolitics of energy, supply chain crunches. This is just bad news by itself. And, and that will dominate the headlines in, in most um, analyses of, of the year ahead, right? Because they're just forces that haven't been around for a while. Um, but what, what I am focused on, um, just because, uh, you know, there'll be tons of people commenting in the, in the financial um, and investment community about those trends, is all of that, all of those forces are going to accelerate political risk as well. When we look, for example, at approval ratings of, of leaders, particularly in the G7, let's say, they actually held up pretty well during the crisis. You know, mm-hmm. you, could call, you could call it a kind of a crisis effect, rally around the flag, this sort of thing. That's all about to, um, you know, uh, go south um, as people experience pandemic fatigue Um, you know, fear of other lockdowns, the just kind of residual effects of having been cooped up all this time uh, and returning to to work. Um, They're going to want to see improvements, change and and all kinds of other things. And um, the Pew Foundation published some really interesting data on how a majority of people in advanced economy democracies are unhappy with the state of affairs. So we're gonna need to apply that to countries that are about to have elections soon, right? So that's Fox Populi risk, right? That's a heightened potential for non-mainstream parties to gain um, larger shares, for government collapses uh, in systems where where that can happen and, and early elections and possibly civil unrest. So imagine those things happening against this backdrop of rising rates and, um, you know, uh, less liquidity coming from central banks, it's not good news. Uh, and I always, you know, am at pains to, to point out to, to people who haven't been in the markets for a couple of decades that the reason why political risk has had really quite modest effects on financial markets is because of the, just the sheer amount of liquidity sloshing around in the system. It's masked it. There's still plenty of, you know, chaos, mayhem, conflict, uh, unrest, you name it, but it hasn't disrupted markets. We haven't seen it in volatility, uh, you know, bond yields, et cetera, et cetera, the traditional indicators. And I think that, you know, it's time to revisit that complacency.
0: Interesting. So some sort of quite concerning uh trends there for for next year albeit you know ones that, that make our job all the more important but but to sort of end off on on just an optimistic note um, what makes you most hopeful for the political situation the political risk situation in 2022
1: well that's a that's an easy question um <laughs> i feel hopeful whenever i talk to younger people whether it's my teenage kids and their friends or Students like you guys uh, who, you know, are approaching their careers, their lives, um, the way they move around in the world with, I think, uh, you know, very kind of healthy optimism, ambition, uh, and it really gives me hope. Um, I, I kind of joke that there's such a difference if I'm speaking to investors about geopolitical risk who tend to be in an older cohort versus versus ESG, um, y- younger, uh, investors and, um, younger people just don't see why there should be these obstacles. Just get rid of them. <laughs> uh, and I like that. I mean, ultimately I'm, I'm probably kind of a, a revolutionary at heart. So that demographic aspect is um is a really important one and i think we've all got used to this extended period of, of baby boomers really you know really directing the outcome of of political developments and that isn't going to be the case forever
0: no fantastic you know that was an incredibly fascinating discussion and one we're going to keep thinking about well into next year um but thank you so much for being on the show
1: Thank you for having me. All the best to you and London Politica.
0: Thank you. And that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.